the 75th Psalm is where we are this morning. Psalm 75. Uh, this is uh, not the mathematical midpoint of the Psalms, uh, depending on how you count up verses and all of that, but it is the, the middle number, isn't it? So let's read together Psalm 75 before we get into our handout. It has a longer heading to it. It says, For the Choir Director, set to Al-Tasheth, a psalm of Asaph, a song. We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks, for your name is near. Men declare your wondrous works. When I select an appointed time, it is I who judge with equity. The earth and all who dwell in it melt. It is I who have firmly set its pillars. Salah. I said to the boastful, do not boast. And to the wicked, do not lift up the horn. Do not lift up your horn on high. Do not speak with insolent pride. For not from the east, nor from the west, nor from the desert comes exaltation, but God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. For a cup is in the hand of the Lord, and the wine foams. It is well mixed, and he pours out this. Surely all the wicked of the earth must drain and drink down its dregs. But as for me... I will declare it forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob, and all the horns of the wicked will be cut off, but the horns of the righteous will be lifted up. God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Well, the first question we want to ask as we think about this psalm, which is about confidence and the coming judge, is what kind of psalm is this exactly? It starts off like a song, song of praise, but it, the most, most of it is not a hymn of praise. I suppose we could call this a prophetic exhortation. It is a prophetic exhortation. And by that we mean that the psalmist is acting as a prophet who is speaking to an audience, urging them, in this case, to repentance. Now, that it's set within verse 1, a word of praise, and verse 9, a word of praise. It opens and closes like a hymn of praise, and, uh, but, uh, but most of the psalm contains direct speech from God. God himself speaks in verses 2 and 3, and I'm going to argue also in verse 10. And then the psalmist speaks in verses 4 through 8, and that's what makes this song a little bit complicated to understand is there's several eyes that are mentioned as you go through it. The, the longer portion of the psalm, that is from verses four to eight, seems to be the dominant part of it, because um, actually even beginning at verse two, because the poem contains words that come directly from God's mouth. Now, what makes it hard is that in this case, it doesn't say, thus says the Lord, but as you read verse two and verse three, it's clear that the person talking <clears throat> is not the psalmist, it's not a or in the worship leader, it is God himself. So in that sense, there's a prophetic word. Someone is recounting for us what God has declared, and then that, that uh, worship-leading prophet goes on to give an application in verses 4 through 8. Let's talk a little bit about the, uh, the setting and the, the usage. That should be Roman numeral 2 in your handout there. 
the author, we're told that this is a song, a psalm of Asaph. Uh, Asaph was uh, one of the worship leaders in the tabernacle that David had uh, set up in around the year 1003 when the tabernacle was brought to Jerusalem. Um, Psalms 73 to 83 are all ascribed uh, to him. And uh, just as with some of the couple, the Psalm 73 and 74, we argued that Asaph could be sort of a, a, a like a code name for any of the descendants of uh, Asaph, any kind of Asaphite. Um, as far as the background, there's no clear events in this one. Like, unlike last week in Psalm 74, it was obvious it was talking about the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple that happened in 586. But when you read Psalm 75, there isn't any single event that you could uh, pin it to. Some have wondered, could this fit in with uh, Sennacherib's invasion from the north in the year 702 B.C.? And the reason they wonder that is if you look with me real quick at verse 6, for not from the east or from the west nor from the desert, which is in the south, comes exaltation. So there's east, west, and south, and there's no north mentioned. And some wonder if that's a hint that trouble was coming from the north, and they wouldn't expect deliverance to come from that direction. That's a, that's, that's a pretty big guess, you know, whether or not uh, that says anything about the background. I don't think it does, but that's a theory that's out there. Um, back at the heading, uh, there are four headings for the choir director set to al Tashef. Al-Tashef is a Hebrew phrase that means do not destroy. And uh, so some have thought that that reference indicates that there was some sort of calamity that was pending on the nation, whether an invasion or something else like that, and the people are bracing for it, and this psalm was used to steady them for that, perhaps. As far as the placement, why it is that Psalm 75 is put right after Psalm 74, I, I reiterate again that the Psalms are not arranged in the order in which they were written. They're, they're more like our hymn books, which are they're arranged by either topic or collections or things. Um, uh, most, of this, most of the Psalms in 73 to 89 are written by the appointees of David's, uh, David's musicians that he appointed over the tabernacle. And, and yet, Psalm 74 and 75, they come from different times. They were eventually placed together in, uh, in this spot in the Psalms. And, and by the way, this is true of so many of the Psalms. Sometimes the, the Psalms, they'll take you one moment from utter despair to the next moment of utter joy. I, mean, I want you to think about Psalm 22. How does Psalm 22 begin? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's this long psalm of lament which... For which, of which Jesus fills full those words, feeling God forsaken, whereas the very next psalm is, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He does this for me and that for me. And so th there's this sort of journey, emotional journey the psalms take you on, sometimes in great despair, the next one in, in great relief. And so in Psalm 74, there's tremendous despair. But in Psalm 75, there's, uh, there's great relief. If you flip the page in your handout, um, they, these two psalms give us a complementary perspective about God's presence. So in Psalm 74, the complaint is that God is, is gone, that God has abandoned them. Whereas Psalm 75 begins with verse 1, the middle phrase, His name is near. 
In Psalm 74, the wicked are overpowering Israel, but in Psalm 75, they are being overpowered by God. In Psalm 74, God is asked at the end of the psalm to come present his case. If you look at Psalm 74, verse 22, Arise, O God, and plead your own cause. Come act like a lawyer and prove what it is you want to do. Whereas in Psalm 75, he's not a lawyer, he's a judge. Uh, verse 2 of Psalm 75, it is I who judge with equity. So both of them have these legal terms within them. Both of them use a rare Hebrew word, well, uh, use a Hebrew word for uh, a, an appointed place. In Psalm 74, verse 4, uh, your adversaries have roared in the midst of your meeting place, your appointed place, the, point, the place where he's appointed for us to meet. That exact same word is used in Psalm 75, Verse 2, when I select an appointed time, and time we infer that it's an, it's an appointed thing, that it's referring to time here. So these two psalms use that same word in different ways. Psalm 74 asks God, how long? How long, O Lord, are you going to allow things to go on uh, like this? But Psalm 75 says that God's going to take care of it at the appointed time. So there's these connections between these psalms. And again, they're not written at the same time, perhaps not even by the same person, but they've been put side by side because they balance each other. If you only read Psalm 74, you might despair. If you only read Psalm 75, you might become overly confident. But by having them side by side, it balances your expectations about the way God interacts with his people and in the world. Does that make sense? So, and when you go through the Psalms, you often get this. I mean, there might be one Psalm, it's just full of joy, and you might wrongly think that this is my, I'm promised to have this experience every day. <laughs> That's not the way it works. And you might read another Psalm, and it is down and blue and black, and you, th you might think, well, I guess this is what I'm supposed to experience every day. Well, no, <laughs> that's, that's not right. So we need, we need to expose ourselves to all of the Psalms and the different experiences to be mindful of the ways that God interacts with us and all kinds of things. All right, now focusing on Psalm 75 itself, the structure of this psalm, I, uh, there are, I suppose, you could break it up a couple ways, but I like to break it up into three parts. There are a couple conversations in the psalm. Um, there, are, there are four speakers, but I think you can link some of these together. So there's a conversation about the judge in verses 1, 2, and 3. In verse 1, the people are talking. In verses 2 and 3, God is responding. And then the, there is the, an exhortation in the middle of the psalm. Where the psalmist is urging rebels to be humble, verses 4 through 8. And then at the end of the psalm, there's two more speakers. The psalmist pledges he's going to worship God. And then God himself speaks one more time to pledge what he's going to do as he's going to bring about uh, judgment at the appointed time. In, in one sense, this is one of the more complicated features of Psalm 75 because there are a number of speaker changes. A number of speaker changes. And uh, sometimes they are marked and sometimes they're not. Um, for instance, in, uh, there, there are four times the speaker changes. So in verse 1, it's we give thanks. Obviously, that's the people. But then verse 2, suddenly we got an I. 
when I select an appointed time. And at first you don't know who that is until you, oh, I judge with equity. Well, this is sounding like God. And then verse 3, yes, this is definitely God who's speaking here. But then you come to verse 4, and there's another I said. And what's interesting is that, um, and I think I have a note about this later on too, that every time in the Psalms, when a phrase begins with I said, it's the psalmist who's speaking. Um, God's speech doesn't begin that way in the Psalms. So that, that's a cue that, in fact, God is spoken about in the third person when you get down to verse 7. But God is the judge. He doesn't say, for I am the judge. He says, God is the judge. So verses 4 through 8 is the voice of the, of the psalmist, the worship leader, who's exhorting rebels, whether they're Israelites or pagans, to humbly submit to God before it is too late. And then the final couple verses, verses 9 and 10, alternate between the psalmist making a promise to God, as for me, I will declare it forever, I will sing praises. That's clearly not the same I as verse 2. Right? And, and then the New American Standard uh, and a few other versions make a, a well-intended uh, mistake in verse 10 uh, because it says, all the horns of the wicked, and the Hebrew text actually says, I will cut off. Uh, now, New American Standard and other versions have he, and they, they're, uh, they're making an assumption that uh, the psalmist is still speaking. And, and, uh, but anyway, this is the Lord uh, himself speaking. So verse 9, the worship leader makes a promise. Verse 10, God himself makes a promise. It's sort of a, a conversation of sorts. Uh, now, when this was sung, we don't know, would this have been sung in parts? Would there have been the choir sing verse 1, and then one person with a booming voice sing verses 2 and 3, and then someone else do a solo for verses 4 through? I don't, I don't know. It's hard to say. Uh, I imagine there's different ways it could, have been, uh, it could have been performed. By the way, some of our hymns, I don't know if you've noticed this, but occasionally our hymns have a change in speaker. I was just talking about this, uh, I think, with, with, with Bob the other day. Uh, let's see now. How firm a foundation... Ye saints of the Lord is laid for your faith in his excellent word. So there's the songwriters talking to us, right? But then, I forget which stanza it is, all of a sudden God starts talking. And there's quote marks, you know, and God is saying in the song, I will not, no, never, no, never forsake. Or I, I just slaughtered the words. But, but uh, some, of our, some of our hymns and songs do this too, and we're kind of following the pattern of the Psalms where occasionally we have the voice of God himself. Well, before we walk through the psalm verse by verse, uh, I want to uh, comment, make some notes, uh, comments. Um, one is about the heading, Al-Tasheth, that uh, is before verse 1. Al-Tasheth, this Hebrew phrase that means do not destroy. It is possible, maybe, maybe possible, that this is supposed to be a subscript to the previous psalm. Um, I forget when it was. It was, I think, on a Sunday night study. I talked about uh, Thirtle's theory. Anybody remember that? Thirtle. Uh, it rhymes with turtle, and I don't know if he looked like that or not, but James Thirtle was a Hebrew scholar in the, I think, the late 1800s, early 1900s, and he had a theory that over the centuries, the copying of the Psalms, remember there were no chapter numbers or verse numbers, he has a theory that over time, some of the headings got glued together in the wrong way. 
and that when you have a really long heading to a psalm like this, that the first part of it actually is supposed to be the tail of the previous psalm. And as evidence for that, he goes to the book of Habakkuk, chapter 3, which is a psalm, and it has a heading before verse 1, and it has a tail at the end of the last verse, for the choir director, it said. So Thurtle's theory is that when you have, in this case, four headings, maybe one or two of those belong as a tail to the previous one. And if that's right, then do not destroy would go with Psalm 74's prayer about the destruction of the temple. Lord, do not destroy us utterly. Um, so I can't prove that. It's an interesting theory. This is one of the spots where it seems to be a very viable idea. Um, but the, uh, what we can say for sure is that this do not destroy phrase refers to either a, a particular tune, um, probably a mournful tune, or a style of playing. Uh, there are about five psalms, four psalms that have this same heading on them. Okay, uh, verse 1, I want to make a little comment also. There's an unusual phrase that talks about God's name being near. Your name is near, it says in verse 1, which is an unusual way to say something. Your name is near? I mean, I, I don't talk like that. I don't say, well, there's Pastor Ed, his name is near. <laughs> Ed is near, but I don't mean that his... But this is an idiom. To say that his name is near, of course, means he is near, but using his name as a replacement for himself draws attention to his reputation and his trustworthiness as the defender of his people. Yahweh has made a name for himself as the defender of his people. And what he has done in the past in protecting them he will do even here in the present. Turn over to the third page. Another, some other observations. There are three important images that are used in this poem. There are the pillars of the earth in verse 3, the horns of the wicked, and then there's the cup of wrath. The pillars of the earth, verse 3, look at that again with me. The earth and all who dwell in it melt quake, tremble, something like that. It is I who have firmly set its pillars. So the earth is depicted as being founded upon these very strong uh, pillars. And I think this is metaphorical language for there being just a very firm foundation. And there's a bit of irony in, in verse 2, the beginning of uh, verse 3, rather. Uh, uh, up top, in the world of men, it feels like everything is falling apart. Um, the world itself, all the people, they're just quaking and trembling and falling apart. But God has not let the world go. He has established his pillars. It's not going to shake utterly. So this is a very powerful image about how God knows how to keep things together. Isn't that good? Because there are times when us in our little worlds, we feel like everything is toppling and turning over and melting but God is still in control. By him, all things consist, says the book of Colossians about our Lord Jesus. So the sovereign one maintains the pillars of the earth. That's good news. There's another striking image that shows up three times in the psalm, and that is about the horns of the wicked. <laughs> now, I was reading this psalm at the breakfast table this morning, to my daughters and I 
I said, do you have horns? <laughs> and she said, you've got two. They're starting to come out right here. <laughs> so these are, these are not devil horns. This is a metaphor for the pride uh, of people. Look with me at verse 4. I said to the boastful, do not boast. And to the wicked, do not lift up the horn. Do not lift up your horn on high. Do not speak with insolent pride. Notice how the first line, do not boast, don't speak with pride, that that explains what the, the horn thing is. And then verse 10, the image is brought back again. All the horns of the wicked will be cut off. Now, we live in an urban, semi-urban society. We don't interact with a lot of horned animals. Um, I suppose we eat burgers, but we're, we're, not seeing the, we're not seeing the horns of them. But put yourself back into an agrarian society where people are interacting with large animals all the time particularly oxen. Oxen are domesticated, they're used you know, to plow the fields, and many of them got this big rack of horns. And you've got wild animals all over the place. You've got oxen, you've got ibex, uh, various kinds of rams and she sheep and goats all budding around all the time. And it would be a very common sight. You've got a pack of horned animals, and the one during rutting season who's, uh, uh, you know, thinks he's can I say top dog? Well, maybe the top oxen, tox, top goat, I don't know. He's, he's the one has got his head up, you know, and it's kind of snorting gleefully at everybody else. It becomes sort of a metaphor for pride. And uh, so the, the wicked, and, and, and these could be wicked people within Israel, as well as the nations around about them, are told, don't lift your head up in pride. You think you're in control. You think you make the world move, but God's the one who runs things. Don't be so boastful. Great horned animals like oxen, rams, mountain goats are known to use their mighty heads in rutting and in battle. To raise the horn is a metaphor for asserting dominance. God will not only lower the proud heads, but notice verse 10, the image is he'll cut off their horns. Amputation. Horn amputation. <laughs> Which is uh, an image of their, uh, their being humbled. Well, there's one more striking image, and that's in verse 8, and that is the cup of wrath. The cup of wrath. Let's read verse 8 again. For a cup is in the hand of the Lord, and the wine foams. It is well mixed, and he pours out of this. Surely all the wicked of the earth must drain and drink down its dregs. So the, here's a, the Lord has it. Now, there are a couple different cups that are used in the Bible, like the Psalm 23, is a very nice cup. My cup overflows. You're sitting at table with the Lord, and he gives you more than you need, and it's a cup of blessing. Uh, but there's also, the prophets often speak of a cup of judgment. And, and Jesus, I think, it draws on this image when he tells his disciples, you know, are you able to drink the cup which I must drink? Um, uh, the, uh, the drink the cup of punishment, of judgment, um, it says here that the, the cup, the Lord is holding this cup, and the wine foams, which just means that this is fermented wine. Um, and in addition to being fermented, it is well mixed, which is a phrase, uh, a, a rare Hebrew word, which means it's mixed with spices, which is something in ancient days that was done sometimes to wine to even to add to its potency. Uh, so the spices might interact with the alcohol, and of course it adds flavor, but it also adds effect. 
and the Lord has prepared this cup and the wicked are going to have to drink it down. It is a cup of judgment. It will cause them to stagger, to lose control, to uh, be brought to an end. God will, at the time of judgment, at the appointed time, spoken about back in verse 2, God will force the wicked to drink down a cup of wrath to the dregs. Um, there are some cups that have got dregs in it that aren't so bad. My coffee this morning had some dregs in the bottom, and they were pretty good. There's other drinks you get down that you're like, no, I don't want to, oh, I don't want to, because uh, it's, it's bitter and potent. And the thought here is of complete domination. Uh, they'll, cause, they'll lose control and stagger into destruction. The, the prophets use this imagery often of God's wrath. I want us to turn to a couple of these passages. Uh, keep your spot here in Psalm 75, but turn with me to Isaiah 51. Isaiah 51. Verse 17, uh, we'll back up to verse 16 that gives a little introduction. I have put my words in your mouth, and I have covered you with the shadow of my hand to establish the heavens, to found the earth, and to say to Zion, you are my people. Rouse yourself, rouse yourself, arise, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the Lord's hand the cup of his anger, the chalice of reeling you have drained to the dregs. There's none to guide her among all the sons she has born, nor is there one to take her by the hand among all the sons she has reared. These two things have befallen you. Who will mourn for you? The devastation and destruction, famine and the sword. How shall I comfort you? Your sons have fainted. They lie helpless at the head of every street, like an antelope in a net, full of the wrath of the Lord, the rebuke of your God. Therefore, please hear this, you afflicted, who are drunk, but not with wine. Thus says your Lord the, Lord, the Lord, even your God, who contends for his people. Behold, I have taken you out of, your, out of your hand, the cup of reeling, the chalice of my anger. You will never drink it again. I will put it in the hands of your tormentors, who have said to you, lie down that we may walk over you. You have even made your back like the ground and like the street for those who walk over it. So this is a prophecy of encouragement to the Israelites who would later past Isaiah's day would go away into captivity and their captivity their conquest by the Babylonians was it was like they'd been given a cup of drink that made them stagger they'd lost all control but the Lord says the time is coming for that to be reversed and it will be your enemies who will get this cup of wrath and they will be brought uh, to uh, brought to an end um, I want us to turn to uh, the book of Revelation and look at a couple of those, and then we'll come back to Psalm 75. Revelation chapter 14, verse 10. Revelation 14. We'll come to verse 9. Then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And that same imagery is used one more time in Revelation in chapter 16, verse 19. 
the great city was split into three parts. The cities of the nations fell. Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. So there's this same language used in the New Testament. We, in modern days, we have, uh, I suppose modern, it's 150 years old, the battle hymn of the Republic. Uh, is that, that song, by the way, it, it is loaded with biblical references, most of them completely out of context. But uh, <laughs> one of the images that's used is, he is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. You know, that God is preparing the cup of judgment. Uh, now, what's wrong with that hymn is that the, well, one, the authoress was a Unitarian who didn't believe in the Trinity, didn't believe in the atonement of Christ, and she believed, secondly, that the, the Union Army was going to usher in the kingdom of God. Uh, <laughs> so that's why I don't pick that one for us to sing <laughs> anymore. It has patriotic value, and it is loaded with biblical metaphors. They're just not uh, put together all that well. Uh, all right, so those are some striking images we find back here in Psalm 75. Let me go quickly through the remaining of the, remainder of these notes, and then we'll uh, go through the visual outline. Uh, in verse 5, there's a reference to stiff-necked people. It, it says in your New American Standard, the end of the verse, do not speak with insolent pride. It's uh, literally, do not speak with a stiff neck. Um, so in the New Testament, you have Peter referring to the, the religious leaders of his day as a stiff-necked and rebellious people. And so people are sometimes just like oxen who they don't want the yoke on them, they don't want, you know, they, they, when they want their horns up and their, their freedom, and, and they're going to, they talk just that way, and this psalm, this verse says, don't be like that. Verse 6, there's a number of directions that are mentioned. Three directions, east, west, and then it mentions the desert, which is where the, the majority of the deserts of Israel are in the south. Uh, and there, there's different ways. In fact, even the words east, west here are not words that strictly mean east and west. In fact, the word for the west is, if I remember right, is a word for like the rising because that's where the, the sun uh, comes up. Um, so all sorts of directions are mentioned. They're all hopeless places to expect help to come because the idea help only comes from the Lord. Israel was surrounded by greater powers. You know, down to the southwest, they had Egypt, and over to the, northwest, uh, to the northeast, they had Assyria, and further to the east, there was Babylon, and then there were smaller little kingdoms all around them, and these were all vain places to look for for help, um, because in the end, it's, these great powers aren't going to deliver Israel, it's going to be the Lord. Only the Lord is the final judge of all and the source of all help. Verses 6 through 8 in the Hebrew text, they all begin with the same word. For, not from the east nor from the west. In verse 7, for God is the judge. It says but here, but it's the same word. Verse 8, for a cup. In fact, some have said that you could translate each of these as indeed. Indeed. They're each making clear points as to why God should be trusted in as the ultimate and final judge. Letter G, uh, there's a, something that's not evident in our English translations is there's a contrast between the one among many. Verse 10, all the horns of the wicked, and wicked is in the plural, wicked ones. 
All the horns of the wicked ones he will cut off, but the horns of the righteous one, singular, will be lifted up. This is something that the Psalms often do when contrasting the, the, the wicked and the righteous. They're often um, paired in the plural versus the singular. Think about Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked ones, nor stand in the seat of sinner, or stand in the path of sinners, plural, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, plural. So throughout most of the psalm, it's the, the, the wicked are in the many, and the righteous are few. And that, I think that's one of the intended contrasts. Sometimes the righteous really do feel outnumbered. Maybe, maybe there's even a hint here that there will be one great righteous man who will bring in the day of God's victory. Maybe this hints at the messianic hope. And one last thing, uh, observation, is about some borrowed lines. Some borrowed lines in this poem, verses 4, 5, 7, and 10, which speak about horns and the boastful and the proud and the horn of the righteous. A lot of these lines sound a lot like the song of Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 2 where Hannah rejoices that the Lord has given her a son, and she sees her, her son as having a, a part in bringing about the Messianic kingdom. I want us to turn to 1 Samuel 2, and we'll read uh, at least part of, uh, beginning in verse 1. Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord, my horn is exalted in the Lord, my mouth speaks boldly against my enemies, because I rejoice in your salvation. There is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one beside you, nor is there any rock like our God. Boast no more so very proudly, nor let your arrogance come out of your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and with him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are shattered, but the feeble gird on strength. Those who are full hire themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry cease to hunger. Even the barren gives birth to seven, but she who has many children languishes. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down the Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and rich. He brings low. He also exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with nobles, to inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and he set the world on them. He keeps the feet of his godly ones, but the wicked ones are silenced in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. Those who contend with the Lord will be shattered. Against them he will thunder in the heavens. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and will exalt the horn of his anointed. There's a lot of similarities there, aren't there? And I, I think that Asaph or the Asaphite who wrote Psalm 75 knows of Hannah's song and has incorporated some of its words. By the way, another person who borrows some of those words is Mary in the Magnificat in Luke 2. And she definitely sees a connection between the Lord lifting up the horn, her horn, and uh, the child she'll bring as the one who will bring ultimate victory. All right, let's go to the back page and uh, quickly we'll go through the, the outline of the psalm itself. Up at the top, there's a purpose statement for Psalm 75. After meditating on God's magnificent works, and the certainty of his judgment. The worship leader calls on all rebels to submit to him who claims ultimate power to raise up and bring down. Starting over at the, the bottom left, you see the green column. There are 
a number of headings. The first one is authorization for the choir director for him to arrange the music, to appoint musicians for it. Um, there's a musical note that Al Tashef is the, either the style of playing or the tune to be used. Authorship is uh, it's a song of a psalm of Asaf, so one of the Asafites has written this. And then lastly, we're told it is a song, meaning it is uh, presumably it's a song you would want to assign some of your better musicians to. Uh, there are three major segments of the poem. It, the first is a divine conversation about the great praiseworthy judge. And the people start off this conversation, the call of the worshipers in praise in verse 1, with this double utterance of thanks. We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks. And what they give thanks for is an appreciation of God's nearness and his past performance. For your name is near. Men declare your wondrous works. God has done great and amazing things in the past. Uh, and we need to remind ourselves of that because the present is oftentimes full of all sorts of challenges. That call from the people, is re there's a response to it in verses 2 to 3. Here's the claim of God about his judgment. His readiness to judge at the appointed time, verse 2. The Lord says, when I select an appointed time, it is I who judge with equity. And then verse 3 is his ability to maintain order amidst chaos. The earth and all who dwell in it melt. It is I who have firmly set its pillars. And then there is a salah, which marks off the, uh, in this case, marks off the segment. There would be a time to pause. And that naturally sets up the, uh, the next portion where the speaker changes. I want to make one more comment about verse 1 I didn't mention. Um, in the Hebrew text, verse 1, it's possible to translate it, we gave thanks to you, O God, we gave thanks to you, your name is near, men declare your wondrous works, which is rare. In fact, it's the only place in the Psalms where it is what could be a past tense. It might be that they're thinking back. In the past, we had great reason to give thanks to you. You did all these wonderful things, and maybe now we're not so sure about how things are going to turn out. And then God, uh, God gives certainly, however you should translate the tense of verse 1, God gives an assuring word in verses 2 and 3. In verse 4, you have the beginning of the psalmist's exhortation to self-sufficient rebels. I commented before that whenever the psalms have a phrase that starts off, I said, that that is the, the words of the psalmist himself. Verses 4 and 5 is an exhortation to be humble before the judge. He confronts self-sufficient boasters in verse 4. I said to the boastful, do not boast. And to the wicked ones, do not lift up the horn. And this confrontation continues in verse 5, in repetitive kind of language now focusing on their stiff-necked resistance. Do not lift up your horn on high. Do not speak with insolent pride. Do not speak with stiffened neck. So he confronts them in these two verses, and then he explains in verses 6, 7, and 8 why it's good to be humble <laughs> before the Lord. And the first reason in verses 6 and 7 is the sovereign has ability to raise up and cast down. For not from the east, nor from the west, nor from the desert comes exaltation, but God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. 
Many times in, uh, in the later years when the map of the, of the world was changing, you know, you had Israel here, Assyria would come down and just start gobbling up nations and kingdoms, and eventually the northern tribes were all taken away. And Judah is left as this little tiny spot. At one point, it's down to just Jerusalem and a few villages. And the temptation was to seek help from the south, Egypt. Um, or, or maybe, you know, from, maybe to hope that, you know, some other force would come from the west uh, and come to the coast and distract the Assyrians. But no, no, no. Help comes from the Lord. And boastful people would brag, uh, you know, like in the days of Hezekiah, there were some in his court who bragged about the connections they had uh, with foreign powers, that this was going to be the answer that they needed. And the Lord kept reminding them, no, they needed to trust him alone. God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. And then uh, verse 8, another explanation about the judge's complete supremacy is about the certainty of Yahweh's cup of wrath to come. A cup is in the hand of the Lord, and the wine foams. It is well mixed, and he pours out of this. Surely all the wicked of the earth must drain and drink down its dregs. The psalm ends, verses 9 and 10, with responsive declarations. The psalmist makes a declaration, what he intends to do, and God makes a declaration of what he intends to do. Verse 9, the psalmist's promise of ongoing praise. The promise of unending proclaiming of the Lord's works, verse 9. But as for me, uh, I'm not going to be like the boasters. I will declare it forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. Notice the promise to praise God for, for keeping. By mentioning Jacob, he is going back to the ancient, ancient days, uh, how God took uh, the wayward Jacob and made him Israel, and from him the nation came. God had been faithful. So instead of boasting in himself, the psalmist is going to boast instead in the Lord. And then God himself speaks in verse 10 and makes his promise. God's promise of righteous reversal. Things will be turned around. There's the promise to sever the power of the wicked ones in the beginning of verse 10. And all the horns of the wicked, in the Hebrew text is literally, I will cut off. The Lord is going to do uh, what they could not do and put down the foreign powers and eliminate their power. You know, when you're a world power and then you lose your power, what are you? <laughs> you're a dehorned thing. <laughs> a beast with no threat. And then it ends with God's promise to elevate the status of the righteous person. But the horns of the righteous one will be lifted up. You know, you, you look sometimes in, in, the, in, the, in the world of, uh, uh, of nature and you see deer, there's elk, and they're ramming against each other. And you, you look for the one with the biggest horns. That that's, oh, that's the one that's going to win. That's the, that's the way it works, right? Until he gets too old and then he gets pushed up. But, you know, in God's world, that's not the way it works. It doesn't matter who has the bigger horns because God is greater than anything. And there are things that come against you and me. They come against the church of God uh, and they threaten us and we think that's just too much. We're done for. God is, God is not put to an end by any of those things. He is the judge. And in his time, and in his plan, he brings about what pleases him. 
So, Father, we thank you for the encouragement we've had from this psalm about you being the supreme judge of all. We take comfort in knowing that you've set in a time in which you will judge the world through your Son, Jesus Christ. We take comfort in knowing that we've come to know him, that he has taken the cup of wrath that we deserve and drunk it down to the dregs that we might not have to take it. Instead, we receive from him a cup of blessing, the assurance that we are his, the assurance that he is the victor and we are on the victor's side. So give us encouragement, our God, in the smaller battles that we go through as we await the final ones, to know that you're with us here even then, that your name is near, you do wonderful things, and you will uphold your people even when everything seems to be so topsy-turvy. We give thanks for all this in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen.